You are listening to Fanfare Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Mulcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to Making Tracks Reaction Chat. I'm your co-host, Mark Newbold, and this is a spoiler-filled episode. So if you haven't yet seen Chapter 19, The Convert, then why are you listening to me? Watch it and come back later. So, in last week's episode, The Minds of Mandalore, Din Djarin and Grogu headed to Tatooine to reunite with Pelimoto, hoping she has a memory core that Mando can use to revive the rogue droid IG-11. She doesn't have one, but offers to sell him the legendary R5-D4 instead. Mando agrees and the three head to Mandalore, where R5-D4 is sent out to scan the apparently toxic planet Mandalore. R5 doesn't answer when called, and so Mando heads into a cave to find him and is attacked by several Alamites, who he eventually takes out with the Darksaber. Discovering that Mandalore's air is indeed breathable, they head below to the city of Sundari in search of the mines. Finding an old discarded Mandalorian helmet, Din gets caught in a trap set up by a cyborg, which quickly imprisons him. Mando then sends Grogu to find Bo-Katan Kreese, and upon arriving on Calvella, Bo-Katan is unimpressed to see the N1, but agrees to help Grogu save the Mandalorian. After killing the cyborg using the Darksaber, they share some pog soup, and Bo makes plans to take them all back to Calvella. Jamrin refuses, insisting he bathe in the living waters. With Bo leading the way, he walks into the waters, reciting the Creed's words, but suddenly disappears and sinks to the bottom. Bo dives in to save him and brings him back to the surface alive, but as they ascend, she sees the opening eye of the Mythosaur and realises that all the stories she was told as a child were indeed true. So, this episode, it's just myself. No Mark Mulcaster this week. He is full prep mode for Celebration Europe, and we can't miss out reviewing an episode of The Mandalorian, especially one as exciting as Chapter 19, The Convert. So... Where do you start with an episode like that? There's so much to unpack in this episode, and it really is a tale of two halves. Or three-thirds, maybe? That makes more sense. We open with Bo and Din departing Mandalore, and upon returning to Calvella, they're attacked by a TIE fighter squadron, TIE interceptors no less, which is kind of perfect with this being the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi. And what ensues is one of the best combat scenes we've seen in Star Wars. Mostly, I say space, mostly takes place within atmosphere and around the castle. Just the way it's put together, the visuals, the music, the moments, Din leaping out of Bo's ship, free fall down and get into the N1. Just so many cool moments that really highlighted what a great action show this is and how well ILM and all the other visual effects teams have worked to make this show a tv show just look like a movie it's never looked more like a movie than it did in these opening scenes and one of my observations of earlier episodes there was an asteroid field scene in the first episode which was beautifully done but the music just didn't quite work and yet in this sequence it really did underpin what we were seeing on screen everything about it was great had a classic star wars feel and you can't really ask for more than that and so after the attack we head back towards Bo's castle as they've managed to evade this TIE fighter squadron, only to find that TIE bombers are absolutely blasting the living poodoo out of her castle keep. 
that is now no more. And so they leave together, heading away from Calvella to, at that time, we don't know where. The moment, though, from that sequence that really stands out is the fact that Boas in the Mythosaur and doesn't say a thing. When Mando basically says, did you see anything down there? She's like, nope, didn't see a thing. So we know she knows, but she's not saying anything yet, which I think from a character point of view is very Bo-Katan. Keeping her cards close to her chest, it's a sensible move. And it's something she can keep in her back pocket to bring out when she needs to. Although there are issues of trust between various factions of Mandalorians. Now things get really interesting because now we're heading to Coruscant, a place that we haven't seen too much in this era at all outside of novels of course we've seen it in Andor but that was the pre-galactic civil war version of Coruscant so here we go to the Galaxy's Opera House a place we know from Revenge of the Sith and we're here to see Penn Pershing Dr Pershing uh, who's of course now at this point a former Imperial scientist who worked for Moff Gideon and he's discussing his experiences in what is known as the Amnesty Programme so some interesting parallels to sort of 1940s post-World War II Europe and America there, which really kind of stands out as something logical. There's, there's knowledge that can be used. He claims that the amnesty program has saved his life and that he kind of didn't have any choice in working for the Empire. That sort of becomes less clear as the episode goes and because he's obviously a passionate scientist who has work he wants to get done but he wants to use his expertise to help the new republic and that does seem fairly genuine in that sense one of the people though that's interestingly sitting in the audience is moff gideon's former communications officer Eliah kane who's listening to pershing talk about how his mother died of heart failure and it was that incident that helped him and inspired him really to work towards the organ cloning technology that he wants to progress further because he sees that as a great bonus to the galaxy, which of course, in the right sense, in the right hands and used in the right way, it would be. But we do live in a galaxy where the cloning issue, I'm waving the air quotes, has become more than just a hot political potato. It's literally led to galaxy-spanning conflicts. And it is a, a touchy topic to to discuss and to be dealing with Hey, it's Alyssa Wong, writer of Dr. Afra, and you're listening to Phanthatrax. Person takes a taxi, goes back to his amnesty housing, where we see him meet some of the other uh, members of the amnesty program. And here we realise that's where Kane, Elia Kane, is involved. She's part of this amnesty program as well. And they kind of recognise each other from passing each other on Gideon's ship, which was very, very interesting to consider that then we kind of think as what well, as viewers that they must have met, but they didn't meet, which again makes all the sense because how many people are on these vessels? And so you get a sense of what this amnesty program is about. And there is definitely a feeling of not only obligation by Dr. Pershing, but a sort of redemption. He has unique talents and skills that he believes can be used for the greater good. That seems apparent. Yes, he was probably naive. He always was nervous. You saw that from the very first episode in season one of The Mandalorian. And so for him to be in a position now where life and circumstance have led him to this point, he probably feels genuinely that he can do something good and atone to a degree. And there's a lot of atonement in this show for past deeds and misdeeds and bad choices and even scenarios where things were out of his control. He had no choice in doing a lot of what he was forced to do. And so seeing him in a situation where they're all wearing the same suits, they're all given numbers 
it's very scarily imperial in tone. And to see that was quite, I think, quite shocking because Coruscant, once again, as opposed to Andor, which a lot of people have said this episode has a very Andor vibe about it, the episodes of Andor where you saw Coruscant was very grey. There was no neon. It was very dark. It's it's completely understandable that they would film it in places like the Barbican down in London because that is a similar brutalist architecture. It's very, very cold. And to see Coruscant once again here utilising some beautiful Ralph Macquarie touches and just elements from different parts of the Star Wars experience that all combine to make that moment in Monument Plaza when you see the top of the mountain of what was Notron before it was even Coruscant was just fantastic to see and to fold all these things in made a real juxtaposition to the scenario that Pershing finds himself in. Now, at this point, we don't really know Kane's motivations and why she's there beyond being part of the Amnesty program. Obviously, if you've seen the episode, you know that becomes apparent. But at this point, you really do start to feel for Pershing. But also, I can understand that a lot of people would be thinking... When are we going back to Mando and Din and R5 and Grogu? This little clan of theirs is evolving as we watch it, but we're not. Every moment you keep thinking we're going to step back to that, we don't step back to that at all. Instead, we stay with Pershing. We stay with Coruscant, most welcome place to be. It's one of, if not the key planet in the broader Star Wars story, we'd always point to Tatooine as being the key place. And there's plenty of other locations that are integral to Star Wars but you could sort of say that because it's the capital for both the Empire and the Republic I know the capital moves around during the New Republic era but nevertheless Coruscant is always going to be from a story point of view from a political point of view from a visual point of view it's just going to always be an important place for Star Wars so staying here is it's not a hardship and we stay with it we see Pershing working what he's being given to do isn't a million miles away from what Cyril Khan is doing over in Andor. Now, Cyril is an up-and-comer. We see him on a local level, and he's trying to be aspirational and move up. You flip that to Dr. Pershing, who's clearly a brilliant man, but then here we are. He's down doing work that is is far below him, far below him, and just to see him in that scenario when he's deleting data cards with important and useful information that he's prepared to go through, but the the rules, and I'm waggling the air quotes again, the rules say that this has to be deleted. It has to go. It's imperial technology. It can't be kept. And he struggles with that. He knows that there is, in amongst all the undoubted evil and wrongness that the Empire made happen in their reign, here we are with technology that in the right hands could be used for good and He is frustrated, visibly frustrated, that he can't see beyond that. There's a really interesting moment where he speaks to a parole droid and gives his feelings about how his emotional state is, how he feels about the whole scenario. Everything that's happening to him and around him and is he is assessed and it is the most perfunctory tick box answers. We see the nuance as humans on Earth in 2023 watching him. We see the nuance of the replies that he's giving and how he really feels about this stuff. The parole droid clearly doesn't. And it is very much a clipboard tick box exercise to just make sure that he's basically doing what he's told to do. He asks the droid about 
wanting to continue his research on his own time. And he's told that, you know, Clone is forbidden by the Coruscant Accords. It's not possible. He has to sort of swallow that. But you know that that bug never leaves his mind. It's it's there now. It's sitting in his head. And there's a very interesting moment earlier when he's talking to a liar and the other members of the Amnesty program. And, and they just start joshing, really, like people do, about, hey, remember those biscuits? I used to like those biscuits. And on the evening, he opens the door and there's a box of the biscuits there. And you don't know at that point which of the four characters gave him the biscuits. Of course, we find out later it was a liar. And you can just sort of see when you watch the episode again for a, maybe a second or third time, how he's being steered and how he's being gaslit almost and led to a, a place that, for him, does not end well. For everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark fathatracks.com for Star Wars news 24-7, 365. Alaya makes it clear that there are ways of doing it and asks him what he needs and, and what is required really to make his progress in this research that he wants to do. He says he needs a mobile lab station and there are mobile lab stations on Coruscant because there's areas of the planet where they are basically scrapping and taking apart starships. Again, another massive Andor connection to Ferrix when they're scrapping Republic starships. And so together they get on a hover train and they travel out to a portion of Coruscant, a bit like the works in the Sack of the Clones. You had that very much had that vibe about it. When they find these abandoned Star Destroyers and cruisers and light cruisers, and indeed they go to Moff Gideon's light cruiser in the disposal yards after a really interesting, actually really interesting sequence on the train where he's keeping his head down. She's really comfortable and has no issues in doing this clearly and no compunctions about breaking the law and being in places where she shouldn't be. He's petrified. He feels like everybody's looking at him. They're not, but he feels like they are until they ask for the tickets and the droids come down and they're moving through the carriages and pushing, pushing, bustling, bustling and eventually leap off the back of the train and land in this place only to get inside the light cruiser and work their way exactly where they need to go, finding this mobile lab, taking the things that he needs and then getting captured just the way it plays and it's so much more elegant than I've described it when you watch it for a second time you realise clearly how she was leading him I read somewhere it described as a honey trap I wouldn't quite put it in those terms but he wants to trust her he's cautious but his brilliance also feeds his naivety because he wants this so badly he wants to be in a scenario where he can make these advancements make these discoveries he's a scientist at heart And by the time he's captured, when the soldiers let her leave with the box and the Republic soldiers capture him and he's baffled, when he's on that table at the end with the Moncal technician about to go through the mind flayer, which the the Moncal says, it's a a 602 mitigator. It's a non-invasive experimental treatment. It's for your rehabilitation. It feels like THX 1138 happening It's grim. Weirdly, when you compare Mandalorian to the Bad Batch, the Bad Batch, even though it's the cartoon and you could say cartoons are for kids, Mr. Chapek once said cartoons are not for adults. Well, the Bad Batch, I I would like to disagree with that very strongly because the Bad Batch tends to be the darker show of the two. And you have recently, with The Outpost and other episodes, had some pretty heavy stuff going on in the Bad Batch. Mando, in the last episode, The Minds of Mandalore, which was, again, a fairly dark episode in tone and visually and just the depth of what was going on. You have Peli Motto, and Peli is generally an upbeat, 
light-hearted, I would say. She's a rogue. She's one of those characters, kind of cheeky, that just gives that enough of a, a smile on the face when you leave Tatooine after being in her company that you can kind of dive into some deeper stuff and it's a bit more palatable to a broader audience. Bad Batch is a darker show. It's a more of a Star Wars connoisseur show. It's very deep in the lore and the history of the time. This episode of The Mandalorian, which, as we've said, feels like an episode of Andor to a many degrees, there's no happy ending here when Kane turns up the Mind Flayer, basically the Mind Flayer, and he's not in a good place. It's kind of grim and very well played all around. Hi, this is Dorian Kinji, and you're listening to Fantha Tracks. Just when you think the credits are going to roll, there we are, back aboard the gauntlet, Bo-Katan Starfighter, and Jaren's there in the N1. They jump out of hyperspace over a planet. They don't say what planet. I kind of wish they did the Rogue One thing when they told you the planet. I do like that. And find out that this is where the Children of the Watches Covert is based. Mando explains that he's been to the Mines of Mandalore. He's bathed in the living waters. Of course, Paz Vizsla's there and just doesn't believe him. And Mando, thankfully, and if I remember correctly, it was actually Bo that did it has a sample of the water. The armourer wants proof, but very quickly, in a very sort of Dumbledore putting it into the reflecting pool moment, pours the water and he's like, yep, this is the living waters, he's telling the truth. And so he's greeted back in. And Bo is welcomed in because, of course, since she came out of the waters herself, meaning she's bathed in the living waters, she hasn't taken her helmet off. And so she's inducted, essentially, into this clan. Even as a member of the Night Owls, she is welcomed into their covert. A fascinating moment to see that, one, she hasn't mentioned she's seen the Mythosaur, and two, the fact that she goes with this. And it would be very Bo-Katan for her to then take a helmet off and say, no, thank you. But she doesn't. You think about it, we follow Din and we want his answers, but now Bo has as many answers as Din, and it's interesting that this show is called The Mandalorian and not Din Jarin The Mandalorian, because now Katie Sackhoff and Pedro Pascal are basically co-stars of this show. Both their names are right there at the top of season three. And so the questions that Bo wants answered are as relevant to the viewers and as relevant to the story as the questions that Mando wants answering. And if you're Dave Filoni, you're on the edge of Ahsoka starting. Bo-Katan has been a character in this world for well over a decade. We've invested in Bo-Katan, you could argue, more than we've invested in Din Djarin. Even though he's the top line star of this huge mega Disney Plus show, she has questions she needs answering and a destiny we kind of want to see the end of. And it was such a great move bringing her into the show because now as these two paths converge, not only do we want to know what happens to her and of course to Grogu and the armorer and the rest of the convert and everything else, her destiny means more, I would say, since being in the living waters and since seeing the mythosaur. But I think you come out of the convert with a lot more questions than answers, but questions that you really want to know. And here we are. Next week's only the fourth episode of the season. And yeah, we're in for a heck of a ride in season three. Thanks for listening to Making Tracks. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit FanfaTracks.com or check out the free FanfaTracks app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. You can reach out to us and send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at FanfaTracks.com. Comment, like, and share on any of our social media feeds at FanfaTracks. And be sure to subscribe, leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice. And as always, thanks to James Temple for composing the FanfaTracks intro, Adam O'Brien from 
I'm making tracks out of my music. I'm Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers. Remember, tune in to Good Morning Tatooine. It's live Sunday evenings at 9 o'clock UK, 4pm Eastern, 1pm Pacific on Facebook and YouTube. And check out our Fanta Tracks Radio Friday night rotation every Friday night at 7pm UK time for new episodes of the Fanta From Down Under, Planet Layer, Desert Planet Discs, Start Your Engines, Collecting Tracks, Cannon Fodder and special episodes of Making Tracks. And that's me done for this episode. Coming up next on Fanta Tracks Radio, it's another episode of Making Tracks. Stay safe, take care, and may the force be with you.